Um, hello, my name is Steve Mosley. I'm the newest elder, but the oldest elder of the church. <laughs> that makes sense, even though it doesn't. I'm uh, married to Patricia Mosley. She's downstairs. And we have two children, John and Stephanie, who are a ways away. And uh, today uh, I'll be speaking on Psalm 123, which is found on page 517. If you would like to use one of the, the Bibles in the chair in front of you underneath, there's a Bible. And uh, that's page 517 there, Psalm 123. If you were on a game show and you'd get $100 for every Christmas carol you could name in 30 seconds, how many could you name? I see mine's racing. Hark, away, O little, joy, midnight, holy night, silent night, go tell, come, first day, Noel. What child? Uh, Fa-la-la-la, Felice, uh, and on it goes. It pretty, you might be drifting into Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. See if that would count for $100. I bet most of those, as soon as I said fa-la, you knew. As soon as I said come, you knew. First day, you knew. You just know it. It's, it's just, boom, it's right out of you. Why? Well, you love it. <laughs> you love Christmas. But they have been taught to you year after year, and for some of us, for decades and decades, and we sing it and sing it and sing it again. So you know it, just like that. Well, there's a group of songs in the Bible, 15 of them, that God's people sang. And uh, the first one is Psalm 120. And then there follows 14 others, which are called the Songs of Ascent. And they are pilgrimage songs. They're songs that they would sing every time they made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They'd sing it on the way. They'd sing it in Jerusalem. They'd sing it on the way home. All these songs, over and over and over again. Maybe you can imagine singing them while you uh, have your backpack on and you walk along with your extended family or with your village or maybe meeting at night around the campfire. Just go back to those songs. There weren't any words that people had to look at. They all knew it. They'd all learned it from their childhood. You know how many times they went to Jerusalem? Uh, not just once, like Christmas. Three times a year. <laughs> three times. That's beautiful, isn't it, Craig? Man, you just have those songs. They're ready in your head. When buddy, somebody says the first two words, you can join in. You just know it. And they're special songs. One, one um, pastor, Sinclair Ferguson, says they're a toolbox. They're a toolbox you take on your hike. Well, it doesn't sound like a toolbox to me. Maybe a backpack. And in that backpack, 
you have the things you need. You have uh, maybe a pocket knife, matches, a compass, maybe first aid kit. They're all in there. But this, this group of songs is something that could just, they could grab right away. Uh, quicker than a partridge in a pear tree. You get it, huh? It just jumps there. It would be quick, all, all sorts of situations, even outside of the pilgrimage, where they could go there. Maybe sometimes when there was disagreement and division, maybe they wouldn't want to sing that song. But it was there, and they'd sing it. Maybe when people weren't getting along, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. <laughs> that is true, but maybe sometimes it might be a little bit harder to sing, but it's there. Maybe in times of national disobedience, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Oh, that would be good to sing. Together, when there's real needs. Um, you see, uh, it's important to have this group of psalms, and part of it is because, as you know, we're all oriented toward felt needs. Advertisers know that. <laughs> and they want to create a felt need for what they want to sell you, obviously. And that's just how we live. We, li we feel a need and we try to satisfy it. But what if there are needs that you have and you have to prepare well before? Before you feel it. That really is what church is about. One of the things church is about. It's not just about felt needs. It's about building into each other's lives what we will need, but maybe we don't need today. And this, the psalm that we're going to look at today is a psalm that maybe most of the times people have sung this. It wasn't for the need of the moment. But it was there when they had great need. And so I really don't know uh, today, uh, there could be various people among us that this is a felt need. I hope there's not a whole lot, but there could very well be. And uh, the psalm we're going to look at is the psalm, is uh, Psalm 123. And uh, I'm going to just pray a minute, and uh, then I'll read it. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, but first I'd like to pray. Heavenly Father, You have called us uh, to a great destiny. And Father, that orients us, that great hope. And uh, at the same time, Father, we know that in this journey, 
that we have. Uh, there's great joy, joy in children, joy in brothers and sisters in the Lord, joy in their tears, and their great heartache too. And so, Father, we ask you to come and minister to us today through your eternal word would speak into our hearts, minister to us today, prepare us for tomorrow. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. A Song of Ascents. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of serpents look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is God's word. Please be seated. The psalmist doesn't start with it. But I bet you saw where the psalmist's heart is. Contempt. Contempt is related to hatred, scorn, mockery. It's considered by many who study those things as the most corrosive, the most toxic of all emotions. It can start with one real offense, or maybe imagined, and putrefies into a hatred of a person, that person's opinions, the people that he relates himself to, all under the contempt of a person. That person is unworthy of considerations. The object of contempt and everyone with him, whatever that means, is worthy of scorn and derision. Now, we certainly can look around us in our society, on the political stage, and other platforms, and it's so present. <laughs> it's just so present. Oh, you think that? Or whether it's, who did you vote for? And all the judgment that follows. Or you think that? I'm surprised. Contempt for that person's opinion and that group of people. Now, it's remarkable. I think it really is It's providential. But it's remarkable in terms of the history of God's church 
that there has been very little contempt directed directly at the worshipers of God, the God of the Bible, during the almost 250 years of the United States' existence. That is not true across the world. Mockery, scorn, threats, ostracization, blackballing, being spurned is part of a Christian's life in many, many places on the earth. And uh, just among us, uh, just in the last, what, four weeks, we've looked at the book of Esther. And again, right there in Esther, there's, there's contempt of one man, Mordecai. And because of Mordecai, all the Jews are to be wiped out. It's contempt, corrosive and toxic. So it's no surprise, really, shouldn't be a surprise, that there is hatred of God's people because Satan hates God's people. And where he hosts, holds sway, that is really uh, one of the things he aims at. So uh, there is, it shouldn't be a surprise that there are places in the world to, where to be a Christian and be known as a Christian is a death sentence. What is really surprising is that we as a nation have had a long period without broad public contempt or persecution of God-fearers. Now, is that changing? Well, one songwriter said, you don't need a weatherman to see, to know which way the wind blows. <laughs> Where's the wind blowing? But, so, today we're going to look at this psalm. We're going to look closely at it to know how to respond, how to go to God when we are mocked or scorned or treated contemptuously. The writer begins with the words, to you I lift my eyes. This, this begins a section which uh, Charles Spurgeon referred to as, and others before him, it was just known as the Oculus Sparans. <laughs> so what? what? It means eye of hope. It's, it's uh, a looking that begins at this moment that gives hope and um, as part of prayer, believers can set their mind's eye on the invisible God. Finite men and women can focus on the exalted, holy, invisible God who dwells outside of the created universe, who has revealed himself in history, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the history of Israel. Out of the starting gate, this starting gate, to you, the psalmist locks his eyes on God. Not like other psalms. No, usually, remember, O Lord, something else. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. Out of the depths I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. No, here it's to you I lift my eyes. Out of his great need, he looks to God. He grabs hold 
of knowing that God and focuses on him. In verse 2, he is joined by the congregation in this song. Okay? Song. Group of people singing, walking along. So our eyes look to God at the end. To you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid servant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Now, this is a difficult thing. I think, uh, you know, uh, to set yourself, to be still and just set yourself to look at God. To not swerve away. <laughs> to not swerve away. To not, to not be distracted. Uh, I'll look at my cell phone. Maybe there's a... Or, or whatever it might be. Oh, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Hmm. I wonder what's for dinner tonight. Uh, just, just to focus. As they say here as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. Just looking, waiting for a word, just going to sit there before God, in effect, they're talking about, and see who he is, what he's like, what are his promises, nothing else, put it out, out, out. A lamentation says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him. It is good that, the, that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Oh, there's so much noise around us in our souls. It is good, but it's difficult in the middle of the night. awake and considering contempt or some crisis. A financial crisis that may swallow you up. Or you're up in the middle of the night to check your child's breathing. Or your loved one. Psalm 135 to 6 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. I, all sorts of things distract me, assault me. <laughs> I'd like another cup of coffee here. I'll just have a drink. Get up and get another cup of coffee in the morning. Whatever, just distracting me from gazing, being present with my God. I have to do what, uh, one of my favorite psalms. This is one of the first psalms that just grabbed me in a, a different way. It was Psalm 162. And it starts out, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. From, for God alone my soul waits in silence. And then a verse farther down Something comes into this psalmist's mind. His soul is waiting silently for the Lord. 
how long will all of you attack a man? They're lying. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Now that's a distraction. Okay, <laughs> my soul's waiting silently. And a context of hatred, false people around us. So what does the psalmist do? Okay, the first time he said, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. The second time, verse 5, he says, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. You see what he did? He, he turned it around. First he said, my soul waits in silence. The second time he says, oh my soul. He's like me talking to myself. Steve Mosley, you wait in silence before the Lord. Steve Mosley, you wait. Okay, that's what we have to do sometimes. We have to command ourselves. No, I've got to wait before God. God's my salvation. God's the one who's going to help me out in this situation. And I will wait before him. Take deep breaths and quiet myself. God is God. God's chosen me. Psalm 131, verse 2. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And Psalm 46:10. Be still and know that I am God. <laughs> now, This is a, a fight sometimes in our lives. To go to God when there's such something horrible that's just pressing down on us. And in this psalm, it's contempt. But if you go and you set before God and set your eyes and wait, you will know that God cares for you. If you are indeed a child of God, you will know He's loving and His promises are the same. He's the same today, forever. In the Psalms in general, the writers pour out their hearts to God. We're, we're encouraged to just pour it out, pour it out. Here it's Wait silently. I think probably the people and the person that wrote this psalm had already poured out his heart time after time after time before God, just like, like we do in crises and great need. It's funny because after they said, oh, I'm just looking at you, God. I'm looking at you like a servant at the master. I'm quiet before you. My gaze is upon you. It just can't keep silent. Have mercy upon us. It can't, can't, it can't stay there. It can't stay there. God, God, have mercy upon us. Uh, enough silence. Oh, God, have mercy. He says, we're filled to the brim with scorn, with contempt. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. 
Our soul has been more than enough, had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Now here in this psalm, the problem is not resolved. Did you see that? It's not resolved. We're left hanging. Oh, <laughs> wouldn't you rather have it tied up at the end? God speaks and he says, wouldn't you rather, I mean, it'd be a lot nicer in all these, these, these hor horrible experiences that we do go through. We're in the middle of them and we don't know the end of the story. And in fact, here, we don't know the end of the story, sort of, okay? But they look to God, and they wait upon God, and they cry out once again to God. Now, God can have many purposes for this in their lives. God has purposes in everything. And um, it could be correction for sin. It could be correction for sin. And it may be that we didn't sin against that person, but God uses a situation to make us gaze at him, and he will work in that situation to correct us. It may be for, we could say, purification. God may have us go through the crucible, the heat, difficulty, so that gold is purified in our lives. Gold could be separated from secondary metals by being in the fire. Out would come the tin. They'd separate the lead, the iron, even silver separated by the heat. Perhaps that was what was going on. Or it could be a lot of different reasons, but it could be to give his children the opportunity to show that they hold God more precious than even their own life. psalmist says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Again, the insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. Here in this psalm, uh, we don't know why they are being persecuted. I'd like to know. I would, I mean, I want to know. And when I'm suffering, I want to know, God, why are you doing this? But that is not the point of this psalm. There's something more important than just knowing the why. The writer doesn't think knowing, us knowing, is the most important thing in his story. The Spirit of God who guided him and gives us this this precious gem, uh, doesn't think it is. What is, is important is that we, in our toolbox, we are ready to pull out this. This look to God. This 
fixing ourselves to look at God enthroned in heaven and wait for his voice or a gesture. He wants us to cry out to God. The psalm it doesn't say how long it's going to last. <laughs> how long? Tell me how it comes out, how long it lasts. I want to see the happy ending. I want to know, like in Esther, this is how it comes out, right? This is how it, ah, oh, feasting and reaching. Ah, oh, but, but there is something good to say. Jesus has promised to come again and to put an end of pain and tears and loneliness and heartbreak and sin, uh, the great rebellion that boils up this contempt. It's going to come to an end. In his first coming, Jesus provided redemption, reconciliation with rebels. He canceled debt. Those who turned to him and abandoned the rebellion, he canceled the debt, and by dying on the cross, he brings new life, reconciliation with God. And he calls us to take the message out. Uh, this message that gives us an anchor in the midst of contempt is so important. If you're here and... Um, and you say, well, how, how can I relate to God? I, that's really weird stuff, Steve Moses. That's really weird. Don't know about that. Uh, there is a way to find yourself as a friend of God. And he is your ally. And he is your help. When he returns, the rebellion will end. Justice will be served. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. <laughs> That's great news. Earth is going to be filled. No corner, no speck. God's perfections, known, brilliant on the earth. Now, we don't know when all the hate and contempt will end. But his intervention, his decisive intervention will end it forever. And his intervention in your life in your need, will end it. I'm not sure. We don't know how it would be. But, oh, it's good to have a God. It's good to have a God that looks and he loves. And like a father with his child, ah, this is done. Move on. Move on to the next chapter. He wants you to come close. He wants you to have this tool, this locking your eyes on God, this crying out of your heart as a regular part of your life, like more than Christmas carols, <laughs> more something that in your desperate need, there it is. Maybe singing it or saying it, even when you don't need it. Just, ah, it's there, it's there, it's there when I need it. I'm going there. I know where to go. So, 
Let's reflect these things to God now. Heavenly Father, you have proven your love for us. What's most precious in heaven, you gave. And he endured the contempt, the mockery, the scorn of the politicians and religious leaders, of passers-by, soldiers, and he won triumph by being faithful to death, by being faithful in the purposes you had appointed for that hour. And Father, that touches our lives. That has given us reconciliation with you. And the greatest contempt for the precious Son of God has reconciled us with you. Because we recognize that we did, we have chosen lies instead of truth. And you are the truth. We've chosen what we want to do instead of what is right. And you draw us to yourself. And so, Father, we just want to commit ourselves now as a church to seek your face in difficult times, difficult times where the world would divide us, the world would set us against each other. I pray, Father, that we would cast our eyes on you and trust you and seek unity and grow in your grace. Father, we commit ourselves to you. We commit our families. We commit to you, Father, each other. In the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, amen. Amen.